The Center for Thinking Biblically is a ministry of the Masters University. Visit thinkbiblically.org for more information. There is a, a line at the very end of probably my favorite short story of all time, James Joyce. He's not, not my favorite author by a long stretch, but he has a short story I read in high school called Araby that tells the story of a little boy who has a crush on his uh, friend's older sister. She's about 16, he's probably about 11. It's his first crush and it's only about three or four pages long. And of course it ends disastrously as those kinds of things do. And at the end of the story he says, gazing up into the darkness, I felt myself to be a creature driven and derided by vanity, and my eyes burned with anguish and anger. Joyce really captures the power of human longing and loss, what it means to know that paradise has been lost to you. All of us live in a world where we are constantly surrounded by and constantly producing echoes of Eden. Paradise is lost, as the great Puritan poet John Milton uh, tells us in his fabulous epic poem from the late 17th century. Paradise is lost. We have been expelled from the garden. There is no more perfect peace, joy, beauty. We can't live in a world without envy, without jealousy, without desires that are left unfulfilled. And all of our desires are tainted, and many of them are entirely wicked all the time. So how do we live in a world like this? And what does this have to do with human culture? You have to understand that the core issue in properly interpreting culture is always to look at the origins. And the origin of all cultural production is humanity, not humanity as a whole, technically speaking, but individuals. Plays of Shakespeare written by Shakespeare. They weren't written by some social energy, as some scholars have said. They were written by a man, and that man was born, lived, died, had experiences, and wrote some things down that he thought he could use to make some money and make some artistic statements. That's what all human cultural production is like, whether it's popular music, novels, movies, television shows, plays, all of these kinds of things. Human beings, according to Scripture, were created in the image of God. The first thing that God tells us about himself is that he is a creator. That's the first propositional statement that God makes about himself in the opening passage of scripture. In the beginning, God created. Everything hangs upon that. If you get that wrong, you get everything wrong. But what follows afterwards in a chain of entailment in a link, uh, linked set of causalities is also crucial to get right. This is why Genesis is crucial and the opening chapters of Genesis, chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, are central to getting proper bearings and orientation with what it really means to be a human being in this world living this life. So when God introduces himself as a creator and creates the, the, the universe as a whole in an instant by speaking, and when over the course of six days he speaks into existence everything that is and then crowns his creation with the most glorious of all of his created beings, Adam and then Eve created from Adam's rib, what God is doing is he is saying, I created man in my image. Now, we can have all kinds of theological discussion, all kinds of theological debate and disputation, and a whole lot of theological theorizing about what that means, that man is created in God's image. But at the very least, we can say with great confidence, because the rest of Scripture bears it out, that God created in us 
a nature that reflects his nature. We are immortal. We are designed to be holy. We are designed to be morally perfect. We are designed with a will. We are designed to have all of these characteristics that God has. We are like God in kind, but not degree, okay? When we speak about God in theological terms, we say he's omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent. He's all the omnis. Well, you're present, but you're not omnipresent. You are potent. You have some power, but you don't have all power. And, you know, God is omniscient, but we're only omniscient. We know some things, but certainly not everything. And we can't do as God does. We were never designed to parallel him in his greatness, but we are designed to bear his image so that when God designed us in his image, he could look upon us and see a reflection of his glory in us. And so we would become a kind of a mirror for God. This is a fairly common metaphor that a number of theologians use. For instance, John Calvin says that all real knowledge is of two kinds, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. And how we are going to know God without knowing ourselves is really quite a mystery. And how we are going to know ourselves without knowing God is really difficult to discern. So we seem to have to get to know God at the same time we get to know ourselves. And what he's saying there, and I think he's accurate, is that the knowledge of God is wrapped up in the knowledge of man because man bears the image of God. If we want to understand what God is like, we need to look at ourselves. But when we look at ourselves, what we see now is a horrible, broken, disastrous piece of God's creation that has willfully disobeyed against God and remained in willful disobedience. Every generation from uh, from Adam forward, was born in willful disobedience. As Scripture says, I was born in sin, and in sin did my mother conceive me. It is impossible to be born without that sinful nature. And so when we look at ourselves, we get a glimpse of God, but it's like trying to see an image of something in a 45-degree mirror that's around the corner but that mirror has been broken and shattered and perhaps it's been burned and perhaps a few pieces are missing and it reflects, but it does not reflect perfectly. As a matter of fact, it gives us the reflection that really is not only not a reflection, but in many ways it's a lie. It's distorted, it's bent, it's broken in all kinds of ways. That's what it means to be a fallen human being. And yet, and yet, that image of God is still born there. This is why human beings are born with a sense of right and wrong and what it, what it means uh, to, to know what beauty is as opposed to ugliness. And so if we want to know what we're like, what we're supposed to be like, we need to study God. And if we want to know what God is like, we need to look at man and recognize in our fallenness the image of God is still born about. Uh, Calvin is quite clear. He says that that image of God can never be entirely effaced. It can't be erased. No matter what you do, no matter how wicked you are, no matter what depths of depravity in your life you descend to, no matter how you might deface and debase and destroy and ruin your body and do things that result in your death, you still bear the tiniest glimmer of the image of God. And until the moment of death takes away the opportunity for repentance, you are entirely redeemable and the image of God can be rebuilt in you over time through the work of the Holy Spirit. So if mankind is a broken mirror, if we are, like God, creative beings, if we are actively involved in creation, and agriculture is, a fine, is, a, is really a kind of creation, and building a city is a kind of creation, and building a culture and building in individual cultural objects is creation, writing sonnets, making movies, learning how to uh, perform beautiful balletic moves is creative work. 
coming up with philosophical concepts, as abstract as they are. That's still cultural production. You're making something. Human beings bear the image of God in our creative nature, which reflects God's creative nature. And everything we make reflects, ultimately, the truth of God and of ourselves. For instance, if you were to look at the very first work that is considered uh, the kind of opening of English literature, you'd go all the way back into about the 8th or ninth century AD, long before English would be a recognizable language, and you would look at the manuscript text of Beowulf. Beowulf is written in an ancient Germanic language called Anglo-Saxon. It doesn't sound much like English at all. The opening lines, right? Sounds not, it sounds more German because it's actually an ancient Germanic tribal language. And this ancient text becomes the root for the story of Beowulf, who's called in by the tribal group at Herat because this terrible monster named Grendel is tearing apart the warriors of Herat who cannot take on this huge monster that lives out in the swamp with his mother. But what's interesting about the story of Beowulf is that there you, you have the basic binary structure of good and evil, right? The, the, the warriors of Herat, who are kind of like Vikings, are the good guys. And the bad guy is Grendel, who's this terrifying monster that lives in a swamp, and he's large, and he may be kind of reptilian and slimy, and he has terrible claws, and he comes in in the middle of the night when all of these warriors are drunk and passed out, and he rips them limb from limb, and he begins devouring them. And they can't beat him, and so they call a hero named Beowulf who comes in and rips off Grendel's arm, and then eventually results, uh, this eventually results in Grendel's death, and then Beowulf gets into a fight with Grendel's mother, who's an equally horrible kind of swamp woman monster, and kills her as well, and saves them from evil. It's a very basic kind of black and white story in a lot of ways. But there's this very interesting passage where it describes Grendel, this swamp monster, uh, as the kin of kin, which we would translate the kin of Cain. The idea is that Grendel is a descendant of Cain, Cain being the first murderer. In other words, Grendel is in fact a humanoid but not really human being that lives in the swamps that has been uh, uh, completely uh, excavated from normal human culture and in fact is a murderer. The problem with that text is that it doesn't go back far enough. It tries to divide people into the good people and the bad people. The implication is that the descendants of Cain are the wicked humans and the descendants of the third son of Adam and Eve, Seth, are the good people. And this is how we all think. We think of ourselves as good and the other guys as the bad guys. And so when Grendel is described as the kin of Cain, what you get is an attempt to claim goodness for yourself. And so the kin of Cain becomes this false genealogy that needs to go back one further step because sin doesn't start with Cain and it certainly doesn't end with Grendel or anyone else. Sin actually begins in the theological sense with Adam and with his wife Eve, but particularly theologically with Adam, the federal head of the human race. And so it's a typical story that tells the story but tells it twisted and allows us to view ourselves as the good guys and the bad guys as the descendants of Cain. And you don't find this only in ancient manuscript narratives either. One of the most popular movies of the early 2000s was Christopher Nolan's brilliant kind of sci-fi adventure psychological movie, Inception. It's a tremendous, uh, very, very complex 
narrative structure that is built around the idea that there's a machine that several people can be hooked up to, and then they can enter into a shared dream world that is constructed out of the mind of the lead dreamer. But what's really interesting about this uh, this idea is that movies themselves are a kind of shared dreaming where a bunch of people sit in a dark room and our consciousness is replaced by a screen that starts off dark and then a world of light and color and motion and action and sound is introduced to us and our consciousness is essentially replaced. We become entirely believing participators in a shared dream. And so what happens in this story is that there's a particular character who comes into a confrontation with his wife. Now, all of this takes place in a dream that's inside of a dream, that's inside of another dream, that's inside of another dream. They're inside of several layers of dreaming, and many of the characters can't really tell anymore what is real and what is not. And he has a confrontation with a character who is his wife, but his wife is actually dead. She is simply the mental projection of his wife that has been built upon past memories, which in the storyline is something that's very dangerous to do. But he still loves his wife, and as a matter of fact, he's driven by one of the most powerful of all human emotions. And as he gets down into this bottom level of a dream within a dream within a dream, he has a confrontation with his wife, and his wife tells him, you don't even know what's real anymore. Stay here with me. Stop leaving me in this dream world. Do you know that what you think is the dream world is really the real world? And this character has a moment of confusion because he's now down so deep inside of his mind and the minds of other dreamers that are all shared together that he can no longer entirely differentiate what his desires are from what he knows to be reality. And he says, I have to leave you. I have to go back to the real world because that's where our kids are. You left them. And she says, stop telling me what you know. Tell me what you feel. And what the character of Leonardo DiCaprio says at that moment is the key to the movie. He says, I feel guilt. Now, this is a brilliant moment in the script, and it's a fascinating piece of cultural artifact. This character, at what really is the climactic moment of the movie, says that he is driven not by his knowledge, but by his feeling, by his sense. And what does he feel above all else? Guilt. That is the core of the human condition. We are driven by guilt. But it's a guilt that's too painful to bear, and so we suppress that truth, and we bury it inside of dreams and and. Uh, uh, conceptions of the world that are not accurate, and we hide it inside of cultural artifacts and layers of philosophy and art and even storytelling in ancient manuscripts and in modern movies. Now, what's really interesting is the conversation that this character is having with his dead wife is that his wife's name is Mal. She's clearly a French character in the movie, and the French word for evil, going back to the Latin root for evil, mal, M-A-L, is evil. Her name means evil. So at his core, he's having a conversation about his guilt with evil, which in this case, as is often takes place in classical Western texts and paintings, the evil is feminized. So he's having this terrible, terrible structure of guilt that he cannot escape and that he keeps pressing down into these layers of lies. Thank you for listening to the Center for Thinking Biblically podcast. To help support this ministry, please visit thinkbiblically.org forward slash donate.
To learn more about the Masters University on campus and online undergraduate and graduate programs, visit masters.edu.